0: the 15 past 15 podcast. We're very happy to have Professor Lisa Yoshikawa as our guest today. Lisa teaches Japanese history at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in New York. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm sitting here with your rather recently published book, Making History Matter, Kuroita Katsumi and the Construction of Imperial Japan. And looking at it, It looks as if a historian, in your case a Japanese historian, writes about another Japanese historian. Which is interesting probably for other historians, but I wonder how does it actually matter, as it says in the title, for the broader picture for this this period of enormous transformations in late 19th century Japan?
1: So you're right about the enormous transformation that's happening at this time period. Uh, The Tokugawa government just has been overthrown, which is in power for over 250 years. Western or European uh, imperialist powers are approaching Japan, and Japan loses it, it partly loses its sovereignty. So the Japanese uh, leaders now have to deal with this new world when uh, there's still the existing sort of Chinese-centric understanding of the world, which was the dominant way to think about the region for over a millennia, is being uh, not replaced but uh, encroached by this new way of looking at the world uh, from the European perspective. So the leaders are trying to make sense of this world, trying to establish Japan as a nation-state, and history plays a large, writing of the history plays a large part in doing that. The Japanese people, the Japanese elites have been writing history before this time, but the model was more Chinese, uh, more of a chronicle of imperial line uh, in terms of the content, rather than trying to write a national history. So uh, history is useful in trying to create this uh, understanding of new nation state.
0: How did they approach this new task of trying to
1: introduce a new model of history? Initially they, they ha- struggle to start Uh, and because again their fallback is Chinese uh, background but eventually they figure out that they have to have professional historians and they have to have a new methodology that would allow these professional historians to write this national history. And the model that the Japanese leaders find as being most appropriate is the Prussian or the German model. So they end up in the late 1880s hiring a uh, Rankian scholar to teach the Japanese scholars how to write history. So what do you mean by a Rankian model of writing history? So the Rankian model is, uh, uh, can, can be explained in two ways. One is the methodology. Our Rankian uh, methodology is ostensibly about history or the past as it actually was, right? So using primary source documents, especially uh, surrounding the state, um, to try to what, write what actually really happened. Uh, so this is evidentiary uh, studies, verifiable empiricism. Uh, the other part, more political aspect of the Rankian history is, uh, as I uh, suggested, uh, centered on the state, justifying the existence of the state.
0: Getting back to the um, the first part that you mentioned, this Rankian model, you mentioned using primary sources. But this, to my understanding, is not entirely new in Japan at that time either, right?
1: right uh, the uh, in China uh, this there was a, a method of writing history called evidentiary uh, studies uh, which came around in about 17th century, uh, which also had been uh, practiced by the Japanese scholars too and basically this was sort of critical examination of uh, primary sources but Rankin history is uh, different from, uh, the Chinese methodology, that in that it's actually trying to write a narrative of the state, not just critically examining sources to try to see if a historical figure really existed or something like that.
0: And could you give a concrete example of this narrative of the state that was produced by this first generation of academic historians, as you call them?
1: So the first generation of academic historians really are not too successful in creating a narrative because they are really earnestly trying to undertake this rankian methodology, uh, sort of evidentiary studies, and start questioning some of the uh, framework uh, that the government want to stress as central to this new nation state. For example, the notion of imperial loyalism, uh, the emperor as the center of the state, uh, this uh, sacredness of the emperor that descends ostensibly from the gods. Uh, And through the Rankian methodology, uh, some of the first generation of historians start questioning some of these narratives. And they ended up getting essentially fired.
2: So this presumably means that if, if you're training to be a historian in late 19th century Japan, a professional historian, you've not, not only got to think about your methodology and how you combine ancient Chinese practices of history writing with these new methodologies from Europe, but you also got to think about how you don't get fired, what your job prospects are. How do you balance these demands?
1: Well, you have to become realistic about what, you, what is necessary to continue to produce these kinds of scholarship. For example, you need sources and archives to house them, but those cost money to build and sustain. Uh, and so you need to get realistic about what do I do to try to build up the field, which actually was almost on its last leg uh, because of the firing of some of these first generation, and how do I resuscitate it, how do I build it? So the second generation of uh, academic historians choose to write narratives that support the government's agendas and more illiberal, uh, creating an authoritarian state and eventually uh, expanding the Japanese Empire. And that's not to say that they're doing this reluctantly and they don't necessarily agree with these ideas. It's just um, a pragmatic solution in line with how many of the second generation of historians were educated. Uh, And it's not a reluctant
2: because presumably the second generation you're talking about now, historians who are graduating from university in the 1890s, particularly, right? Uh, and this is of course the period when Japan is acquiring its first formal colonies in in the form of Taiwan after the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, so, th- are you saying that you know that the project of writing history for the state, by the time that this second generation comes around, is already an imperial project?
1: Right, right. Uh, and you know they graduate from college in the mid-1890s on, which means they still have to go to graduate studies. So by the time they're out of that, it's definitely a colonial project.
0: Can you give any examples which sources especially qualified for this new narrative of an expanding imperial Japan? So these
1: doc- well, the documents, by their nature, tend to be elite-produced material anyway, but especially to do with politics for example, especially to do with the imperial household. Uh, Those are some of the uh, documents that are collected. Uh, And once we start, these historians, if I may jump ahead a little bit, uh, some of the second generation historians also start doing similar projects in colonial Korea. they, they also collect selectively, of course, but the professionalism, so to speak, of uh, the historians are seen when, when they're compiling actual sources to publish out of these uh, material, they, of course, uh, include the materials that would justify Japanese colonization of Korea, but they still gather other sources uh, and keep them, although they might not publish them.
2: Can you give us an example of one of these collections that is being published, or the ways in which the choice of sources is justifying the state and the imperial state?
1: So with the example of uh, the Korean sources, uh, the Japanese uh, are quite... Uh, selective in when to start this collection of documents, so which historical uh, period to start. The periodization is slanted to justify colonization. And the endpoint is established so that a lot of the sort of anti-Japanese sources don't make it into the published sources, right? But uh, those sources uh, that come after mid-1880s, for example, are still collected. They're just not published for, public consumption.
0: So let's get to the protagonist of your book, Kuroita Kazumi. Can you tell us a bit what he contributed in making history matter?
1: So Kuroita is a historian who originates from Kyushu. Uh, he's educated in, so he comes from new Nagasaki, so he comes from an imperial loyalist background area. Uh, and he becomes one of the three of the second generation a professor at uh, Tokyo University. And what uh, stands him out uh, of among the three professors is that he was almost a a politician in terms of his public activities. So as he was uh, starting as a graduate student, this is when the first generation was fired. Uh, the uh, future of the historical field was in jeopardy. So he decides to resuscitate the field by making political connections, for example. Uh, He's realistic about needing money. History needs other enterprises. He gets interested in new methodology like archaeology uh, and tries to, uh, through numerous uh, historical enterprises, commemoration of historic site of people, writing in numerous... uh, uh, Avenues to, uh, from to children to his peers uh, tries to establish this sort of a much broader uh, understanding and appreciation of history. And as he was doing it by by writing this statist expansionist narrative, uh, that was getting support of a major politi- from major political figures or philanthropists uh, who agreed with that view would start uh, uh, funding or cooperating politically in trying to uh, establish the field of history. So he's making history matter in the sense of the academic field, but also uh, history in general. And what were the themes that he used
0: and introduced that were so appealing to a broader Japanese audience?
1: Well, he isn't always uh, received well. So there are many other people writing history, in the academia, outside the academia, Uh, and so there are conflicts of opinions, conflicts of interpretation uh, surrounding what he puts forward, Uh, but uh, he is quite skillful in his rhetoric, Uh, and uh, even that disagreement uh, and sort of oppositional dialogue is what's creating this interest and sustaining this interest in history. What exactly were Kuroita's intellectual models and resources? Uh, the models, a lot of the models come from Europe uh, and the United States. The difference between the first generation of academic historians and the second generation, although there's some exceptions here, is that beyond the second generation and on, a lot of these uh, scholars are Studying abroad for a few years. And for Kuroita's case, he uh, takes a trip to Europe and the United States, sort of around the world trip, uh, as early as 1908. And he's actually studying the field of how history is being done uh, in various European countries. And that becomes a model for, for example, setting up sort of a, a state led historical preservation enterprise that comes modeled uh, a lot from German uh, example. for
0: So how does the relationship between China and Japan at this stage in historical scholarship in Japan play into the field?
1: China, as a reference point, does not go away, right? Just because these newer generation of historians are trained in European methodology, that doesn't mean they're not trained in the Chinese methodology. The referencing point uh, remains, uh, well, China remains one, to be one of the referencing points, is a good way to put it. But in terms of where China places in the understanding of history, that changes, because uh, uh, as we know, uh, in the late 19th century, this Sino-centric, China-centered world collapses, essentially, uh, with the Japanese victory in the Sino-Ja- uh, Sino-Japanese War in 1895, and Japan becomes the center of the region. As I said earlier, uh, one of the unique narratives that uh, uh, the uh, Kuroita was trying to make was that Japan had adopted and adapted Chinese civilization, and then later European civilization. This characterization of Chinese civilization becomes more negative and negative and negative as China falls into the Civil War. So again, this is not unique to what this uh, uh, is doing, other uh, academic historians, for example, writing uh, what was called Oriental history. Uh, have uh, this model too. But the place of China uh, definitely changes going from the late 19th century into the 1930s.
0: In other words, by the 1930s, what or how history method had changed completely?
1: Yeah, yes, uh, what I'm arguing is that Japanese historians weren't just reluctant uh, collaborators in this establishment of authoritarian state and sort of imperial expansionism. Uh, They weren't just cheerleaders, they were almost instigators. Rather than this being a price that these historians paid for the establishment of the field, they got the cake uh, and got to eat it too.
0: On that note, many thanks for joining us for our podcast today.
1: Thank you very much.